Well, good morning to you all, and why don't you take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 4. While you're turning, I'd want to say just a special quick little thank you. I don't know who I'm thinking. I'm just going to think, give a, a general thank you because I know some of you at least uh, approached the elders and just decided to give a little thankful free will offering to myself and my family. End of the year, uh, just generous gift. Very blessed by it. I just want to say a big thank you to all the generous people at this church and just everyone. We're, we're so thankful to be here ourselves. And we love you guys. We love this church. We're very happy to be here. And looking forward to another year. But I just want to give a, a thanks to, to all those who, who gave to us. Very generous. Well, this morning we're, we're in Force Peter 4 again. And hope you all had a great Christmas with your families. We've got the new year upon us just a few days. And it's, it's amazing to see another year gone right by. And what's more amazing is that we all made it. And I think you know what I'm talking about. It's amazing we're all here because the world was supposed to end 10 days ago. (laughs) I'm sure you heard the world was forecasted to end on Friday, December 21st, 2012. I'm sure you all got prepared with your supplies and your bunkers and and whatnot. After years of anticipation, the date some had thought to be the end of the world finally came and went. This is all according to the ancient Mayan calendar, which... Some interpreted to mean the world would end on Friday, December 21st. How did they arrive at this date? Well, the Mayans believed time ran in cycles, and this present world is part of a 5,125-year cycle. This cycle is made up of 394-year periods called Bactons, which started at 3,114 B.C., and when time ran through 13 of these cycles their calendar would end, and and supposedly the world would end. When you apply the Mayan calendar to our calendar, you get the date of December 21st, 2012. At the end of the calendar, some thought the end of the world. How will this end happen? Well, some thought the Mayans believed another planet was on collision course with Earth and would impact on that date. Of course, doomsdayers and conspiracy theorists ruled out that option as we would have seen an approaching planet by now. But still, others believe that just something would happen. Some, some catastrophe would happen on that date. Maybe a huge solar flare would, would occur, causing havoc on Earth. Or maybe a giant reversal of the Earth's magnetic field, causing just mass chaos. Either way, people believe something was going to happen on that date. Doomsday cults made another modern prediction that, that there is only one place in the world to survive this Armageddon. And if you heard, this was in a, a small town in the south of France named Bougarac, the town, a population 176. Bougarac, from pronouncing it right, it's a tiny farming community in the foothills of the French Pyrenees Mountains. The town is actually known for being at the base of a, a very mysterious mountain. Some people believe this mountain to have special magnetic forces. Some think it, it conceals a, a secret alien base. Some doomsday believers even believed that on the appointed day, the, the aliens would emerge from their spaceship garage, as they called it, and pluck believers to safety. For this reason, thousands of people flocked to this small town, a few as actual doomsday believers, most just as tourists. And the locals in the town were not going to turn down the opportunity. Authentic stones from the town went on sale for two euros a gram. A bottle of water from a local spring went for just 15 euros. People were renting homes for thousands of dollars a night. One store even sold apocalypse pizza with end-of-the-world vintage wine also available. And when the end didn't happen, the very next day they sold a survival vintage wine for tourists. At least it's good to hear that these people weren't taking these predictions too seriously. What's truly amazing is to hear all the reports of how some people actually did believe the world was going to end couple weeks ago. In Russia, in the Kirov region, there was a rush to buy kerosene and other supplies after a newspaper confirmed the rumors of the end of the world. Another city saw a run on salt, matches, and other supplies. It got so bad in Russia that the prime minister had to step in and actually declare officially the world was not going to end, he said, at least not this year. Also, in some parts of China, there was a wave of paranoia. There was a run on candles in many cities, and And in Shanghai, police reported that scam artists were even getting people to hand over their life savings as a final act of charity, believing the world was going to end. It's pretty amazing. America was not immune. Ron Hubbard, a manufacturer of these high-tech underground survival shelters, he saw his business boom. His sale of these 
Doomsday bunkers went from one a month to one a day at the end of 2012. What's sadly funny about this is that some people actually think a little bit of food, water, and matches is going to help them survive the end of the world. If they only knew what the end was going to be like, and this end is described in Revelation 19, when, when Christ returns after the tribulation, and when he comes back the, the second time, it, it's not going to be to save necessarily, but rather to, to judge. In Revelation 19, as Jesus returns, he is pictured with, with eyes like flames of fire, and he's wearing a robe dipped in blood, and he's accompanied by an army of angels from heaven. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's Revelation 19, verse 15. See, no one alive at this time is escaping this. You can buy all the matches you want. You don't escape this judgment. Jesus is returning, the Bible says. And and while that means certain judgment for those who have rejected him, it also means certain rescue for those who have accepted him. For believers, the return of Christ is victory and vindication. The Bible has much more to say about the return of Christ, which we will save perhaps another time. One thing the Bible does not mention, though, is the date of Christ's return. Christ very well could have come back on December 21st, 2012, or... December 21st, 2013, or July 23rd, 2212. We just don't know. And any attempt of setting a date is is surely futile and foolish. Still, although we don't know the day or the hour, God has instructed us as to how he wants us to live in light of the end. And this is largely what the Apostle Peter is writing about in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Before Christmas, we were camping out in 1 Peter, for a couple of weeks, where Peter is talking about the end. And he starts it off by saying in verse 7, the end of all things is near. In God's timeline, the end is indeed right around the corner. It is always near to God. And God simply wants us living with this constant expectation that Christ could return at any moment. This then should lead us to be ready and faithful. But the question we've been asking for a couple weeks here is, is how? How exactly does God expect us to be faithful in light of the end? What exactly does God want us to be doing, to, to be busying ourselves with in light of the nearness of the end? That's what we've been asking, and that's what Peter has been answering for us in 1 Peter 4. He begins with a statement, and then he builds off of it. The end of all things is near, therefore... He says, therefore, this is what you should do about it. This is how you should live in light of the nearness of the end. This is what it looks like to be ready and to be faithful. And since it's been a couple weeks to refresh your memory, let's go ahead and read our our passage again. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. And the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves, It's to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this text, God inspires Peter to give us three activities to focus on in light of the end so that we might be ready for Christ's return. Three activities to focus on. These are three actions, three duties that need to be your ever-present focus in this life, leading right up until the end, whether that comes by Christ's return or, or even death. And these three activities are prayer, love, and service. Prayer, verse 7, love, verses 8 and 9, and service in verses 10 and 11. And instead of rushing through all this at once, we, we've turned this into a little mini-series. We've slowed down. We've already covered 
prayer and love, the first two activities earlier in December. But these instructions, they're just overall too good and too practical to rush through, to pass up. And so I purposely wanted to milk them a bit and really bring out their practical application. And that's what we've been doing over the past couple of weeks. Today, as you can guess, we're going to be continuing with the, the third activity to focus on in light of the end, which is service from verses 10 and 11. And our goal is very simple, just to exposit verses 10 and 11. Just go through explaining the verses, understanding what this third activity is all about, service, and then making certain to really be applying this to our lives. Because we want to get this right. We want to be the ones living, ready, and faithful in light of the eventual end. I'm excited for this because this third activity is so needed in the church today, service. Now, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Peter, he's got a pattern going in this section where he gives a main statement, a general statement, and then he follows it up with some specifics. And verses 10 and 11 are are no different. He starts off with this main statement in verse 10. That's where I want us to begin, in verse 10. So look again at 1 Peter 4, verse 10. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. At the center of this verse is this word charisma in the Greek. It's translated gift or special gift. It's interesting, this word charisma comes from the Greek word for grace, which is charis or charis. Charisma then notes, denotes the result of charis or grace as an action, or in other words, a gift. This word is referring to a gift, a grace gift, a free gift given to someone, which is actually a bit redundant because technically all gifts are, by definition, free. But I think you get the point. Christmas was just a few days ago, and I bet most of you participated in the tradition of exchanging gifts on Christmas morning. And just just imagine this. Someone gives you a gift on Christmas. Maybe it's a a jacket. You love it. They're happy you love it. But then they, they hold out their hand and they say, that'll be 50 bucks. That'd be so shocking. We don't even think like that because that, that doesn't even make sense. It's not a gift. By definition, we think of a gift as something given just totally free, free of charge, free of obligation, just a totally free gift. And that is what's behind this word charisma. It's a totally, truly free gift. And this word for gift, it's used of two things in the New Testament. One is our salvation. You're probably familiar with the verse, Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift, charisma, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is to say, salvation cannot be earned or bought. Your sin debt before God is infinite. You can't repay him what you owe. You just can't do it. You owe too much, but by his grace... By his unmerited favor, he has given you freely the gift of salvation, of forgiveness, of eternal life. If you believe in Christ, if you accept him as your Lord and Savior, God just gives to you for free something you could never earn or deserve or pay for. It's it's salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, eternal life, just free. It's It's a free gift, charisma. This word charisma is also used in reference to another gift in the New Testament. That's something we call spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. What are are those? What are spiritual gifts? Well, Spiritual gifts are are supernatural abilities or divine enablements given by the Holy Spirit to all believers for the purpose of building up the church, the, the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are not the same thing as natural talents. Even unbelievers have that. Everyone's got a natural talent. But these are special gifts given by God for the work of service. These spiritual gifts are addressed in many places in the New Testament. One of them is right here in, in 1 Peter 4. That's what he's talking about in verses 10 and 11. He's talking about spiritual gifts, charisma. This topic of spiritual gifts, it's so important for the church, both back then and even today. Yet today, as you, as you well know, there, there's so much misinformation and false teaching circulating about this topic of spiritual gifts. And we don't have time this morning, of course, to, 
to tear down every falsehood, but we can at least build up the truth and at least get to the bottom of what Peter has to say about this topic of spiritual gifts. And that's what we're going to do. I said before, verse 10 is his main statement. And it's very instructive when you pick it apart. He actually has a lot to teach us about spiritual gifts. And so I I want to, again, slow down for verse 10 and camp out here a bit and find out what he has to say. And when you look carefully, what you find is five things you need to know about spiritual gifts. That's what we're going to look at right now. Slow down a little bit for verse 10 and find these these five things that you all need to know about spiritual gifts. It's a little bit of a a sub-point. These are five basic truths about spiritual gifts that you all need to know, and they will help you build, at the very least, a basic understanding of this incredibly important topic of spiritual gifts. So we're going to camp out in verse 10 here. And let me give you just the first thing you need to know about spiritual gifts. Every believer has a spiritual gift. That's number one. That's the first thing you need to know. Everyone has one. Notice how he starts verse 10. He says, As each one has received a special gift. Let's stop there. This phrase, it's very explicit and straightforward in the Greek. No one's left out. Every single believer, each and every one, has received a special gift. And notice, he doesn't say each one might receive a special gift, or he doesn't say if you receive one. He says each one has received a special gift. If you are saved by God, then God has given you permanently his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. And the Spirit then in turn gifts you and equips you with a special gift. There's no exceptions. No one is left out. There are no useless members in the church. At my old church, my my wife and I, we ran this program called Angel Tree. You ever hear hear of that before? It's a Christmas time ministry. It's a program where, where people at the church, they buy Christmas presents for children who have one or both parents in jail. The church buys the presents, then we organize, we deliver them to the families. And it really gets us into dozens of unbelieving homes where we then share the gospel with the children and their caretakers. And that's really, that's the real goal of the ministry, to share the gospel with these families. Anyway, I remember one delivery. Beforehand, the families tell us how many kids there are and how old they are, so we know what kind of gifts to bring them. I remember one delivery. We were going, we were expecting at the house for there to be three kids. And we had gifts for just three kids. That's all we had. We show up and, and guess what? Four kids. And I'll have to tell you this. You already know, but there's nothing worse for kids than to be left out at present time. And the parents know this. And when it comes to spiritual gifts, though, distributed by the Holy Spirit, you don't have to worry about that. No one gets left out. Nobody gets left behind or left out. If you're truly saved, then Scripture guarantees you have a spiritual gift. It may not be new to you. You may have heard this before, but just think about the implications of that. If you are a a true Christian, you have a spiritual gift. So what is it? Do you know? Have you discerned what your gifting is? And then are you using it? Are you faithfully serving with your spiritual gift? Or are you just clueless for years? If all this is true, do you think God has given you a special gift so that you could do nothing with it? Or do you think he wants you busy serving others with the gifting he has given you? What do you think? You see, both now and as we continue, you're not going to be able to escape the conclusion that this teaching on spiritual gifts is going to place some big demands on you. If this is true, you tell me. You're going to be required to to be serving others with whatever gift you have. The gift may be free, but it comes with some instructions and comes with some demands placed on it that you put it into practice. It's become clearer as we continue, but let's move on. The first thing you need to know about spiritual gifts, every believer has one. Every believer has a spiritual gift. The second thing you need to know about spiritual gifts, you can't choose it. You can't choose your gift. Look again at at verse 10. 
key word in verse, in verse 10 I want you to point you to is received. He says, as each one has received a special gift. Like we said before, the, these spiritual gifts come as, as giftings from Christ himself through the Holy Spirit, and he does the choosing as to who gets what gift. God measures out his special grace as he sees fit. It's up to God as to how he chooses to gift a certain person. Listen to this, Romans 12:6. He says, since we have gifts, charisma, same word, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. We all have different gifts, and how do they differ according to the grace given to us by God? We don't choose. God chooses for us, and he gives a gift to us as he sees fit. Or Ephesians 4, 7. He says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We're not choosing. God is, is giving gifts to us. Here's another verse. Keep a finger in 1 Peter 4 and turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. If you may know, it's, it's really the critical passage on spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 12. Let me just read verse 1 while you're turning. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. In this first verse, Paul is introducing his topic. It's going to carry him through three chapters, 12, 13, and 14. Three of the most condensed and really jam-packed teaching on spiritual gifts in the entire Bible. And when he says this word, spiritual gifts, in verse 1, it's the word pneumatikos, meaning that which is of the Spirit. But he's going to use it later interchangeably with charisma. They mean the same thing. One word means spiritual. The other word means gifts. Put them together, spiritual gifts. That's where we get it from. And the teaching is all about spiritual gifts. And pick up on this. Look look down at verse 4, and let's read this section together, 4 through 11. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Note, by the way, the whole Trinity is involved in this topic of spiritual gifts. Father, Son, and Spirit I'll mention there. Now verse 7. He says, But to each one, there it is, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So in the passive, you just receive this manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual gift. Verse 8, he's going to give you some examples. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles. And to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of the spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, verse 11. But one and the same spirit works all these things. And catch this last phrase. Distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Now, I know there's a lot in here, but the point I'm making is it's up to God through the Spirit. He wills, he determines who gets what. He's distributing gifts as he wills. And think about the implications of this again. Every believer has received a gift, and you can't choose what you get. Now, do you think God's going to get it wrong? No. Do you think God knows what he's doing in giving you your gifting? Yes. And should you therefore simply embrace your spiritual gift and start using it? And the answer is, of course. When I was a kid, I played baseball pretty much forever. And in baseball, you don't get to choose your batting order. You know that? If you play baseball, you know that. Coach chooses the batting order. First up, your most reliable hitter. The guy who's always going to get you on base. Second and third, pretty good. You put your pretty good hitters on there. Fourth, your power hitter, the cleanup guy. He's your best hitter. Fifth or nine, everyone else. That's how it works. You don't get to choose. Coach 
chooses the batting order. All you can do is accept your order, whatever it may be, and just play a role. And it's the same with your gifts. God has chosen for you, so you need to accept his will and, and find out where your gifting is and then play your role with a happy heart. That's how it's supposed to work. Now let's continue on. The third thing you need to know about your spiritual gifts. Remember, there's five. The third thing that you need to know about spiritual gifts from 1 Peter 4, your spiritual gift comes with a purpose. Your spiritual gift comes with a purpose. If you're back in 1 Peter, look again at verse 10. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. I want you to pick up on this this phrase here. He says, employ it. Use it, in other words. Get busy with it. Put it to use. Your spiritual giftings, whatever they may be, come with a purpose, and God wants you to use them. So don't be lazy with them. Don't sit around doing nothing. Don't ignore them. Instead, employ them. God expects every single believer to be working and serving with the special gift that he has given to them. So are you? Are you serving with your gift? This is so important. You can't miss this point. And let me explain this further. Somewhere around the 4th century A.D., Christianity became legal in Rome. And then a little while after that, guess what? It became the official religion of Rome. And from that point on, more and more as the years went by, the church started looking less like what we see in the Bible and more like the Catholic Church that we know today. Now, one of the things the Catholic Church did was to develop a priesthood system. You know, they have priests, we don't. Nowhere does the New Testament tell us to have priests over us. And to the contrary, the exact opposite is true. We we don't need a priest anymore. We don't need a mediator. We're, We're all priests before God, Scripture teaches. But anyway, the Catholics, they wrongly imported the Jewish priesthood system into the church. And they made it a tool of their tradition. And then they added their own made-up regulations like celibacy for priests, which is found nowhere in the Old and New Testaments, and stuff like that. Anyway, over time, there became this very clear priest-laity or or clergy-congregation distinction. You know what I mean by that? It's like, you know, that guy up there, he's the priest. Ministry is his job. He does it all. And that's his job. He reads the Bible. He leads worship. He administers the sacraments. He forgives our sins through confession. He counsels. He instructs. He takes the offering. He does everything. He's the priest. It's his job. Me, I sit. I watch. I listen. And that's it. I don't participate. I don't serve. It's not my job. It's his job. He's the priest. That's what we pay him for. That's what he does. And this is how the Catholic Church thought and still thinks today. Thankfully, this changed during the Reformation. The Reformers, they went back to Scripture and they realized many fatal flaws in the Catholic Church, one of them being this priesthood system. Nowhere is this taught in Scripture. In fact, as a side note, the Bible actually forbids calling men father in a spiritual sense. And it says that if anyone comes along and forbids marriage like the Catholics do with their priests, it is a doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. I'm not making that up. But the Reformers understood that all believers have been given spiritual gifts by God. And they're to use them serving the church. So here's the point. Ministry is not just for the guy up front. Ministry is for everyone. All the people in the pews as well. The concept of one guy or a few guys doing ministry while everyone sits and watches and listens and doesn't do anything else is totally unbiblical. Every person is called to minister to others and to serve with their spiritual gifts. Everyone is supposed to do ministry. You get that point? If you do, you might be asking yourself, well, okay, if that's true, if everyone is supposed to do ministry, why do we have pastors and elders? If ministry is really for everyone, why have ministers? I'm glad you asked that question. Why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll show you. Again, keep a thumb in 1 Peter 5 or 4. 
and then turn to Ephesians chapter 4. If this is true, if ministry is for all people and not just ministers, then why do we have those who minister? We'll start off, look at verse 7. We read this before, First, uh, rather Ephesians 4, 7. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We all have a spiritual gift. We all have a, a measure of his grace. Now jump down to verse 11. He says, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are the categories of leadership, both in the early church, apostles and prophets, and now evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? Why did Christ give those giftings to the church and enable man to serve like that? Why? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's a lot in there, but when you boil it down, it's pretty clear. God's goal with the church is maturity. That's his goal with creating the church. It's the same with parents. You want to see your kids what? Grow and develop and mature and flourish. That's what God wants to see out of us, the church, the body of Christ. But this growth is a group effort. God has gifted some men to serve as leaders, pastors, teachers, but he did not gift them so that they could do all the work and all the growing. What this verse teaches is that God gave some as leaders, pastors, teachers, so that they could equip the saints to use their own gifts and to participate in the growing and the maturing and the serving. That's why we need ministers. Ministry is for everyone. Their job is to equip you to do your share of the ministry. And that's it. Spiritual gifts are not confined to some elite class of guys like priests or pastors. They're for everyone and everyone is to be using them. That is the point. Now, normally, when you see something that needs to be done at church, what do you think to yourself? Someone, some, boy, someone better tell pastor about that. That needs to get done. Or, hey, you better tell the elders because that, that needs to get done right there. But that is totally the wrong way of thinking according to what we're learning in First Peter and, and elsewhere. If you think that this church or any church needs more evangelism, or more discipleship, or more counseling, more cleaning, more fellowship, more singing, more whatever. Don't ask, hey, what's, what is pastor doing about it? But instead, you should be asking, what am I doing about it? Or, what should I be doing about it? That's the right attitude. That's the right mindset. That's the right response to this teaching on spiritual gifts. Because you're a minister too. You all are to do the work of the ministry. You have a gifting from God, and you need to be using it and employing it, as 1 Peter 4.10 says. Usually, the people who do the most complaining at church are the same people who do the least serving at church. And shouldn't it be that way? Instead, contribute to, instead of contributing to the complaining department, contribute to the service department. That's what God wants you to do. Do you know what it takes to see a church just absolutely flourish? It doesn't take having you know, some super gifted pastor or elders to do all the work. It takes every single individual member serving with their gifts, pitching in, contributing to the whole body. That's how a church flourishes. It's when everyone's doing their part. It's when the body is functioning as a healthy body, every member serving interacting, using their gifts. Your spiritual gifts come with a purpose and realizing that ministry is your responsibility as well. You need to get busy employing your gift. Third thing you need to know about your spiritual gifts is that your gifts come with a purpose. Now, that begs a question. If they come with a purpose, what exactly is that purpose? 
Not hard to answer. This is the fourth thing you need to know about spiritual gifts from 1 Peter 4. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to serve one another. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to serve one another. Why don't you go back to 1 Peter 4, verse 10 again. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. It should be already pretty clear by now, but the explicit purpose of you employing your special gift is to serve others in the church. Every time, every time spiritual gifts are mentioned in Scripture, their purpose is the same, and it's crystal clear it is for serving others. All of them. There's no exceptions. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for, for what? For the common good. Not for my good. For the common good. Or listen to this, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. He says, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. But let all things be done for edification. That's the purpose behind them. It's to build up others. Whatever they are, let it be done for edification, for building up of, of others. You have a gift, it has a purpose, and that purpose is for you to be serving others now. And I just read 1 Corinthians 14. It makes reference to some of these sign gifts that some people, like ourselves at this church, believe are no longer in operation. The sign and wonder gifts, I personally believe that the case against the sign and wonder gifts still in our operation today is pretty clear from Scripture, like tongues, healing, miracles. We believe that those passed away after the, the beginning of the church. Now, that discussion is huge. We'll save that for another day, whether that is the case or not. I'll just say one thing about the modern charismatic movement, which you really can't avoid when talking about spiritual gifts. Just for one, at times, they sure get the purpose of spiritual gifts wrong. I had a childhood friend who was not a Christian growing up, just like me, and then he moved away to Florida. Fast forward to our college years, we both become Christians. And it was cool to see God working in our own lives separately, bringing us to salvation. However, he got drawn into a charismatic church. And we were catching up one day, just talking. I asked him about it. And he believed that God had given him a special gift of tongues so that he could have a special private prayer language. Just him and God, speaking in tongues, praying to God just privately. And I've actually heard many charismatics talk about having this special, secret, private prayer language. But what's wrong with that? Uh, There are many things, and don't even get me started into the many problems of the modern tongues movement. But just for one, this flies in the face of everything the Bible says about the purpose of spiritual gifts. God doesn't give any gifts for self-edification. There's no such thing as a self-serving or private gift that defeats the purpose. Every single one, no exception, are given to edify others. God has made everyone in the church interdependent. We all depend on one another. We all need one another to grow. And this is because no one person has all the gifts. God has gifted people variously, and so we need everyone serving because we need all the gifts at work. When everyone serves, this leads to greater unity and greater growth. It's like streams. Tiny streams leading into a mighty river. On their own, they're they're tiny. They're weak. They have no force. But when they all come together, they form a mighty gushing river that, that nothing can stop. And that's like the church when everyone comes together and everyone serves. It can do things. This purpose behind the gifts of serving others, though, should always be on your mind. You need to be asking yourself, am I serving? Am I serving others? Am I using my gift to build up those around me? Let's finish off 1 Peter 4.10 now. I told you from this verse we would find five things you need to know about spiritual gifts. And we come to number five now. Serving with your gifts is a matter of faithfulness to God. That's the number five. Serving with your gifts is a matter of faithfulness to God. Read the whole verse now. He says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as 
good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Serving with your gifts is a matter of your stewardship before God. And you have to ask yourself, do you want to be found a faithful steward or a lazy steward? A steward is one who is put in charge of his master's property or wealth. They do not own it. They're given task of watching over it, caring for it, maybe even increasing it. They're not given a stewardship to serve themselves with it, but to serve their master with it. That's the purpose. And God, he's given you a special gift by his grace that comes with a purpose, the purpose of serving others, and God is going to check to see how good of a steward you have been with his gift that he's given to you for a little while. He's going to check. Have you used it faithfully? Have you used it at all? Your faithfulness is on the line. This recalls to me, at least, that the parable of the good steward. Remember that? Matthew 25. Turn there. It'll be our last passage. So you can leave First Peter now. Matthew 25. I want to cover this. Several weeks ago, we read a portion from Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Christ is teaching his disciples about the end. And he's telling them the end is near. The end is always near. Therefore, you better be found ready and faithful. Because he could come back at any moment. I told you then how Jesus followed up this teaching with two parables in Matthew 25. First is the parable of the ten virgins, which is all about the importance of being found ready in light of the nearness of the end. Then he gives the parable of the talents, which is all about the importance of being found faithful in light of the nearness of the end. And I want us to turn our attention now to the the second parable, the parable of the talents. Matthew 25 And look at verse 14. We'll start there. Matthew 25, verse 14. He says, For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Let me stop here for a second and tell you what a talent is, in case you don't know. A talent back then was a measurement of weight. Today, roughly about 130 pounds. If you had a talent of gold, you had 130 pounds of gold. That's how they measured weight. Or or rather, that's how they measured wealth. In the parable, it's actually talking about silver, but that's not important. The point is, when this master is giving talents, it's talking about wealth or money. I'm just saying that, just so you know that Jesus is not describing the master giving natural talents or abilities. It's not like the master is giving one guy the talent of of cooking, another guy the talent of of singing. We're not talking natural talents in this parable. It's talking about wealth or money. So keep that in mind. Verse 16. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away. And dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now stop there. So far, so good. These guys receive different starting amounts. But what's important is that they were simply faithful stewards of what they were given They multiplied it, and their master rewarded them, blessed them, and called them good and faithful slaves. Now we come to that third guy. Third guy, verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. 
And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. And see, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received back my money with interest. Therefore, verse 28, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's this parable teaching? What's his point here? He's teaching the importance of faithfulness. When God gives you salvation, like we talked about earlier, it's, it's free. It is absolutely free. But he does thereafter demand faithfulness. This is no problem for the true believer who simply proves himself to be faithful and fruitful and true. That's good. No problem. But the one who is not faithful, who was wicked and lazy, simply proves himself to be no true servant of his master at all. And such a false servant will find no place with God, hence the importance of faithfulness to God. Faithfulness shows the reality of your salvation, or not. Now, I understand this parable has in mind, really, the gift of salvation. He's not talking about spiritual gifts in Matthew 25, but... It can be applied to spiritual gifts because just like the gift of salvation, they come from God and God wants us to be faithful with them. So it's perfectly legitimate to ask, what has God given to you tied to your salvation? What spiritual gifts has he entrusted to your possessions, into your possession? And then what kind of servant are you being? Are you being faithful and ready or you like that the wicked slave who was lazy and careless with what God entrusted to him. Remember, I said your, your faithfulness as a steward is on the line when it comes to these spiritual gifts. If you claim to be a Christian, but you continually neglect to serve others with your spiritual gift, it starts to beg the question, are you really a Christian? God has given you gifting. He's called you to serve others. That's your task. That's your talent, so to speak. What are you doing with it? Using it? Serving others with it? Or are you burying it in the ground, ignoring it, not doing anything with it? And you know what happens to the slaves in this story. Because true believers are going to be faithful, they're going to be fruitful, and they're going to serve one another. Your faithfulness as a steward is on the line when it comes to your gifts. At the very least, hopefully you understand just how important this teaching on serving is. It has nothing to do with work salvation, but it does have everything to do with what God expects of you after salvation. And plain and simple, we've learned five things about spiritual gifts today. Five things all of you need to know. Every believer has a gift. You cannot choose your gift. Your gift comes with a purpose. That purpose is to serve others. And serving others with your gifts is a matter of faithfulness to God. First Peter 4.10 As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now I know a few of you might be nervous. Because you realize it's already been 50 minutes or so, and we haven't even gotten to verse 11 in First Peter chapter 4. This is going to be a two-hour sermon here. Well, not so much. I decided while I was preparing pretty early on, I wanted to do a whole another week on verse 11 because there's just too many other things we weren't able to cover that I can't skip with a clean conscience. I just can't. For instance, the main exhortation I pass along to you today from 1 Peter 4 is that, look, you all have a spiritual gift and you need to be using it. Isn't that the bottom line? You have one if you're a true believer and you need to be using it serving others. But... You know, what, what are the spiritual gifts? 
can, can you give us a list? Didn't have time to cover that today. Also, once you know what the gifts are, you know, how do you figure out which one you have? How, how do you discern your gift? Didn't have time to cover that today as well. But these are huge and important topics. I can't pass these up. The last thing I want is for you to leave today thinking, well, okay, I, I get it. I should be serving with my gifts, but I don't even know what they are. I don't know what mine is, so just forget it. That's unacceptable. Like we learned in Ephesians 4, I have to do some more work to equip you, the saints, for the work of service. That's going to include another week talking about this subject. So next time, I promise, we'll finish up this section of 1 Peter, but not before rounding out this topic on spiritual gifts so that you are equipped to respond, and then it's up to you. So that'll do it for today. But for now, still, take seriously God's charge from 1 Peter 4.10. If you know Christ, you have received a special gift. So start praying already that God would make his gifting clear to you. And then in time, as you discern your gifting, be resolved to, to get busy, to be serving others, to be using it, not just sitting, consuming, watching, listening, but participating, acting, helping, serving others. As you do this, as we all do this, then, then you can sit back and watch yourself grow and this, this church grow as we all become more like Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word this morning from 1 Peter 4, verse 10. And we thank you for all of your gifts. First and foremost, there's the gift of salvation, which you, you give to us, totally free of charge, changing us, making us new, also forgiving us of our sin debt before you. We thank you for this ultimate gift. Thereafter, Lord, it doesn't stop. You give us a spiritual gift, a special equipping for the purpose of serving the other saints in the church. We thank you for this gifting as well, and I pray you help all of us to be serving with our gifts. I pray for those who don't know their gifting to to learn it, to discern it, to start to study the subject and find out what their gifting is, as we will learn next week. And then help all of us, Lord, to to get busy, to serve, to use whatever gifting we have for the purpose of building up one another in the flock. And I pray as we do that, Lord, you would just grow this church, both in breadth and in depth. Help us to reach out and serve others and to love others and to grow more into the image of Christ. That is indeed why you have saved us and brought us together. May we all leave here today growing more into his image. In your name we pray. Amen.